0: Hey, Josh. How's it going? Oh, pretty good. Um, I'm a little curious, though. You said you were going to tell me about uh, your trip to San Francisco last week.
1: I did. So I think you're going to appreciate the irony here. What is San Francisco known for? Uh, rice a <laughs> That's true. Not what I'm looking for.
0: <laughs> uh, Golden Gate Bridge. Um, mm-hmm. um, fog.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, Cable cars. Trolleys, Yes, exactly. Mm. I was walking along and I've got to admit I'm on my phone, probably checking our Twitter at Indubitably Pod, by the way. And I literally ran into a parked trolley. Super embarrassing. Just kind of the exact opposite of the moral question of the trolley problem. Yeah, I kind of wish somebody had pulled a lever and (laughs) diverted me away from running into it. But then would I have run into five trolleys? I have to think about how close they usually are to each other. (laughs) So I was actually in San Francisco to visit one of my friends and a friend of the show, conveniently enough, Rob Bowler, who is actually going to be joining us today to talk about exactly that, the trolley problem. Rob, welcome to Indubitably. Thanks, you guys. I'm really happy to be here. I'm a big fan of this show, and I'm also a big fan of trolleys. Nice. (laughs) You're living in the right city then. To give a bit of bio here, Rob is actually a professor of rhetoric at the University of San Francisco. He's the director of debate for the team. Before that, he was the director of debate at the University of Hawaii. So you're picking some nice places to live in. That's what's up. (laughs) He had a previous career in management and leadership consulting. And perhaps most importantly for today's show, he has made many unethical decisions in his life. I think that sums me up. We're going to see if we can help you change those decisions and live the rest of your life ethically.
0: I would caution anybody listening to this episode and Rob, you yourself from taking any ethical advice from Josh.
1: <laughs> probably smart. That's probably
2: a good idea. I've known him for quite a while, so hes I know he's got some some shade in his background as well. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Try to keep that out of the show, but maybe after the fact, we can discuss
1: it on the, on the DL. And this is how we lost half our listeners. <laughs>
2: Well,
0: um, in light of uh, whether or not we're going to have some questionable ethics present today, what we will be discussing today in the first half of the show will be the trolley problem itself. And in the second half, we'll be discussing another classic scenario, which is one from
1: game theory, The Prisoner's Dilemma. The Prisoner's Dilemma? Is that Trump trying to figure out where he's going to get his next Big Mac from behind bars? <sighs> <sighs> laughter, laughter. Laughter. <laughs> Tackles controversies that define your world.
0: Listen to Indubitably now. Extra, extra, read all about it. So, today we'll be discussing two principled scenarios first, the trolley problem, and then the prisoner's dilemma. We'll talk about some of the theory behind each, cover some scenarios in which they are applicable, and perhaps play a couple of games.
1: Mm, Indubitably does eight out of 10 cats.
0: 8 out of 10 casts does countdown. Indubitably does, 8 out of 10 casts does countdown.
1: Perfect. I knew you would (laughs) (laughs) clean that one up for me. So why don't we start with the trolley problem? And in case you haven't heard it before, the classic version goes, you, listener, are on a trolley that is barreling down the track. And on that track is a set of five people tied down, unable to escape the horror. You have the option, though, of pulling a lever. And if you do pull the lever, you divert the trolley onto a different track, which only has one person on it. Not empty, though. So do nothing. Trolley kills five people. Pull the lever. Trolley instead kills one person.
2: I think your knee-jerk reaction is, you know, less people dying is a good thing. But however, that means you've made a personal choice and it's no longer an act of God. You actually have maybe some responsibility. And sort of have to look inward and decide what's the right thing to do here versus what's the amount of death we're going to see on the trolley splatting scene.
0: Isn't not making a choice still a choice in and of itself, too?
2: Mm. I feel like that's a song.
0: (laughs) I had a conversation with somebody yesterday who witnessed somebody falling down at work and just walked right past them because he said, as soon as you touch them, it becomes your responsibility. (laughs) Whoa. (laughs) he can't remember, but he thinks he
1: called for help after he walked past that person.
2: Oh, I think he was trying to clean up his ethical
1: mess. (laughs) You should uh, refer him to our show. And hopefully at the end of this episode, he'll know whether he made the right or wrong decision.
0: Most alarmingly, he was my mentor for six
1: months. (laughs) Mm, That explains some things. Yeah, maybe. The classic two schools of thought, I think, that are used to analyze the trolley problem fall in line with what you were just talking about, Rob. One is Utilitarianism. And this is a consequentialist form of ethics that says we can determine the right action by looking at the impact of that action, right? What are the consequences of the action? That's utilitarianism. And on the other side, we have deontological ethics, which says there are certain things that are morally good or bad regardless of consequences. And these two competing ideas play out very preeminently in the trolley problem. On one side, pulling a lever to kill somebody suggests that you have taken an action that results in somebody's death. Deontological ethics says it's never okay to take an action that results in somebody's death. Therefore, let the trolley go. It hits all five people. Utilitarianism, the consequences of you not taking that action would be five people dead. Five people is worse than one. Therefore, pull the lever. And I think at its core, this is what the trolley problem asks us to analyze. Dun, dun, dun.
2: I don't know that it's that simple.
1: <laughs> All right. What's more complicated about it? Five is bigger than one. Well, you know, there's, there's a, a lot of nuance to it, right? We've
2: got various backgrounds in terms of our, maybe our religious upbringing or whatever sets our moral code, if you will. So if we've got philosophy, we might call a categorical imperative. Like, hey, this is under these circumstances. This is the only right action. It doesn't matter what the, the quantity or some sort of measurable way of showing this is a worse outcome. It doesn't matter. We've just certainly got to make something that's clearly a right and wrong choice.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the idea that ethics are black and white, universal, categorical, is definitely the approach that a lot of the world takes. And, and you said religion specifically. I think a lot of religions see the world in that way. It is either the right thing to do or it is wrong, period.
0: Mm. But outcomes are measurable, which I think leans in favor of a utilitarian argument, because then we're not applying a moral judgment to the action until the consequences happened. And then you can actually determine which is better, (laughs) one person squished or five. It seems pretty obvious if you're using that framework that it would be preferable to have fewer people dead.
1: Intuitively. Everybody appreciates the ability to measure whether or not they're doing the right thing. And in defense of utilitarianism, what good is a principle if it doesn't actually result in a better world? Like, cool, you're so moral, you stuck to your code, you stuck to your commandments, but everything's burning.
2: There's also a lot of relativity around how do you measure these results. In this case, oh, it's five to one, but you know, isn't there other ways to to measure the pragmatism or the mass benefits? the good for all
1: in utilitarianism. Mm -hmm. Besides that, Rob, the other issue here is with utilitarian ethics and you measuring, that means you're going to have a different result in every scenario. And I don't think that a better world in one particular instance necessarily means that you're going to get a better world overall after you play out this scenario hundreds and hundreds of times. Like The consistency of having a rule over time might be the better option, even if it means things seem worse in particular cases here and there. I think we
2: need to like walk through some scenarios to feel if Josh's rationale here is actually making sense.
0: So we have to run the trolley problem with actual people and we have to do it hundreds of times.
1: That's a great idea. (laughs) Wait a minute. Mm
2: -mm.
0: If any of
1: our listeners would like to participate, we'll fly you to San Francisco to run you over. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> what about just the basic trolley problem, though? Let's start here. Most people, studies show, would pull the lever. Save the five people, pull the lever, kill the one person. Kelly, would you? Would you pull the lever? I think you know that that, that
0: I would. A lot of the ethics that I abide by are through a utilitarian framework. I very much adhere to outcomes rather than some vague, amorphous, moral imperative that exists outside of outcomes. So definitely I would pull the lever.
2: Rob, how about you? I'm going to be a contrarian and just say, hey, I'm going to keep my hands out of this. So this is an act of God. And, and you know what? I'm not going to count bodies here. It's just I'm not going to take responsibility. And, and, and sorry,
1: I could let the trolley go. Leave it in the hands of the San Francisco Transportation Department. Exactly. What about you, Josh? I think I'd pull the lever. I'm very much uh, also a utilitarian here, and i'll I think as we go through some variations, I'll be able to give some more reasons on why. The first variation that we can talk about, and this is interesting, because, as I said, in the classic trolley problem, the vast majority of people surveyed would pull the lever. But in this scenario, the vast majority of people surveyed would not, and it's a it's a relatively, seemingly at least, small difference. Same scenario. There's a trolley barreling down the track. It's going to kill five people if left unhindered. But this time you have a person standing next to the track that you can push onto the track. And if you push them onto the track, they're large enough that they're going to stop the trolley and once again save five people at the expense of the one. In this case, though, the vast majority of respondents say that they would not be willing to push the person. So. What's different here?
0: Because the person wasn't already in harm's way. And it feels much less like uh, a situation outside of your control when you're not just switching the direction of an immovable force, but you are actively putting somebody in the
1: path of it. Mm. I think this one backs you up, Rob, because I don't know about our listeners, but I would imagine that some of them... At your answer for the first scenario might be like, this guy's an asshole. He's letting five people die. But when you say, hey, I just don't want to deal with it, the respondents to this scenario suggests that most people, whether they want to admit it or not, actually have the same attitude that you do, which is, hey, I don't want to be culpable. I don't want to take action. I would rather passively let whatever happen, even if that's theoretically a worse outcome.
2: You know, in in these thought experiments, we also have the the advantage of we're not in the moment, right? We're sort of like contemplating from a distance with no emotions involved. So I'm suggesting maybe I would do this because I'm forward thinking and going like, I'm not going to deal with the cognitive dissonance in the future if I have to be the person that pulls the lever or shoves the person onto the tracks. So I might be more utilitarianism in the moment if I didn't get a chance to... Really sort of think through what I was gonna to have to deal with psychologically after the fact.
1: And do you two think that there's a difference here also between active and passive culpability? Rob is saying, hey, if I don't take an action, then I I'm not culpable. I'm kind of passing the blame on to the San Francisco Transportation Department. But I can think of a lot of historical scenarios where people doing nothing did take on some responsibility for immoral actions happening.
0: I think that there is a moral responsibility to act if you can. And we talk about that, I believe, in our uh, intervention from journalists episode quite a bit, mm-hmm. that there are opportunities for people to jump in and do things to help others. And whether or not there is an onus on them to actually do it is is a question. I don't think that inaction is morally neutral or good in any way. There can be times where inaction is the morally wrong thing to do.
2: It makes me think of the bystander effect versus what actually USF where I work. We have the little university freshman course where they talk about being an upstander, mm-hmm. which is basically,
1: hey, if you see something, do something. So I hear where you're at, Kelly. Are you going to get in trouble for taking that stance on the trolley problem? Are you are you not upstanding? I'm just being the contrarian here. I'm just trying to uh, be a good guest. <laughs> I'm not saying this is aligns with my moral code. <laughs> we should probably point out, as we do every once in a while on the show, that the views expressed are not necessarily the views of <laughs> Kelly, myself, or our guests, but we're committed to expressing all viewpoints on all issues.
0: Just make sure you know my, the views I express here are not the views of my employer. That's
1: all I'm concerned about. <laughs> same, same. Here, here. The underlying assumption here, though, if you're saying that inaction carries with it some responsibility, is then also that we have a responsibility to help the people around us, right? There's some kind of connection between us and our fellow humans that say, if they're in trouble, if we have the capacity to help, there is some type of obligation to carry through with that. And I don't know, is it biological? Is it societal? Is it religious, familial? Where do you guys think if passivity, is that a word? I think so. I'm going with it. Mm -hmm. I like to make up words on the show. So even if it's not, I'm going with it. If passivity carries with it responsibility, where is that obligation? From where does it spring up? I guess it depends on your overall moral framework. Let's go back to another one of our
0: previous episodes on effective altruism. How far does our obligation to other people extend? Do we have to know them and care about them personally, or should it be to all people, regardless of the context? That's an enduring debate.
1: That plays into this too, because if we have an inherent connection to every other person, and if that connection is relatively equivalent, doesn't that reinforce the idea that the utilitarian mindset here is the correct one? If I have an equal obligation to each person... Then that means there are five obligations to the five people on the track, and there's one obligation to the one person, whether I'm pulling a lever or pushing the person. And if all of that is true, then seems straightforward. Pull the lever, save the five. Utilitarianism is the way to go here.
0: I suppose that depends on if you say that having obligations to other people, just because we're all people necessarily means that the obligation has to be equivalent. I don't think that's necessarily the case. There's ways to care about and protect other people in different amounts than people that you're closer to. So there's nuance here is what I'm saying.
2: I'm actually really interested in the evolutionary biological take on this. So we're talking about contemplating these decisions. What about if the split second decision? Is this somehow baked into our DNA? What to do in that moment? It isn't like we're sitting around doing a podcast. What would you do kind of situation?
1: That's true. I think everything we're saying here probably should be taken with a grain of salt. We don't know if we would actually follow through in the way we think we would, huh? Maybe not. And what does that say about your ancestors? <laughs> well, the humans are here and we're thriving. So in some sense, they chose to make decisions that would help the majority of the species. At this point, it seems as though the utilitarian mindset is the one that's winning. but we could take this scenario and adapt it again and show at least why these deontological ethics still have some ground to stand on. So, in this scenario, let's say that you're a surgeon and you're operating on a patient, and this patient has the organs that you could use to save five people's lives. Very similar one person, five people. Would you then, if you think that it's okay to pull the lever, And move the trolley, would you then also be okay as a surgeon to allow your one patient to die in order to harvest their organs to save five other people? Mm. As far as utilitarian ethics go, it's the same thing.
2: Maybe you default to the, the doctor's code and what the ethics
1: of your professional role might be? Isn't the doctor's code a sort of deontological framework, though? This is what's right, period, regardless of utility. I think they're mainly thinking about whether they're not going to get sued or not in that situation. (laughs) (laughs) Kelly, as somebody that works in hospital admin, probably doesn't want to comment on that.
0: Uh, I don't work in patient care, so I can say whatever I want. Uh, But I do think that like the first do no harm as a medical ethical framework is not just because that's the rule, but it is actual outcomes based because overall they're probably going to have net improvement of human life and human quality of life. Even if they compromise it on the occasion of having someone on the table who could save five other people, that's one scenario out of hundreds or thousands of surgeries that that person will perform. So on the whole, they're probably going to do more good than harm if they just follow their ethical framework.
1: That's interesting. So are you suggesting that at its core, a categorical imperative that says you do this no matter what? is still utilitarian in function. It's just suggesting that there's a there's a utility to having a black and white rule that's implemented across all cases because when we have that kind of consistency at the end of the day, we do get more good than harm rather than trying to figure it out, eat case by case and doing what's convenient in the moment.
0: Not every time. I just think in this instance, that's how it works out. There are definitely some rules that have been the way that things have been done morally or ethically for a couple millennia that don't make any sense, but people abide by them anyway. And in those cases, that's not really beneficial. This one just happens to work out that way.
2: I'm curious about that, the ethics of triage. Is that something that doctors in general, that they get some training? Is it just default to do no harm, you figure it out, you're a doctor, You're you're the authority here?
0: There's um, ethics of triage that go beyond just active patient care, even though I don't work in patient care. We do have a response matrix for how we handle certain facilities issues because they could affect patient care down the road. And there's also prioritization of care to patients based on the possibilities of their, their outcomes in the future too. Like they'll prioritize probably younger patients over older patients because of potential of a better quality of life being much longer for them
1: i feel like i need a day-to-day response matrix for my life (laughs) that's what we're here for at the end of the show you're going to have it (laughs) and what kelly's talking about brings up another interesting twist to the trolley problem let's say in this scenario there's actually five people on each track so the numbers are the same but on one track you have babies and on the other track you have senior citizens In this scenario, Trolley is barreling down the track towards these five babies. Would you pull the lever to save the babies at the cost of the lives of the senior citizens?
2: I'm pretty sure 99.9% of humanity would pull that lever at that point. That's that's my guess. But then I believe in humanity is ultimately good. That's a different episode.
0: We're going to be very slow to admit whether we would kill babies, right? I think
2: so, right?
0: (laughs) I think that there's also a a part of this scenario that's kind of interesting is that the babies wouldn't know probably either way that there was some sort of moral question here, but the seniors probably would. And I imagine knowing the cynicism and I am over it-ness of most seniors I know, they would probably be like, yeah, just let the trolley get us
1: and save the babies. (laughs) Last episode, we covered the midterm election. I complained about how most of our politicians are older than they should be to be representing us if those five seniors happened to be in congress i'd pull the lever for sure
0: which party though
1: i don't care <laughs> but I, I there, do. there there is a party i would be even quicker to pull the lever for fair enough <laughs> we'll leave it at that but this is a problem with utilitarianism is it's really difficult to measure quality of life do the babies have more quality of life or does the fact that their life just started actually make them worth less? I don't think there's a set answer. And so for a philosophy that says, hey, we need to measure the consequences and the utility and how much good and how much evil, if we don't have units of measurement for things like quality of life, how can we employ a philosophy that asks us to use those to make our decisions?
2: When you say quality of life as a criteria, are you talking about the quality of their personal lives or about what they might give back to the
1: greater community? I think it's both, and that's the problem. Mm. What if the one of these seniors is a an amazing person, uh, who's who's a good person? Nancy Pelosi,
0: (laughs) (laughs) Bernie Sanders.
1: What if one of these seniors is Bernie Sanders, and he's ready to forgive all student loan debt, and he's on the track, and you kill him, and one of these babies is ex future politician. You can fill in the blank of anybody you hate. In that case. Hitler, would you keep the trolley going on the track to the babies? How do we know?
0: There's two things that are at stake here. One is what has a person done up to that point, which is how we probably would evaluate the seniors and what could the person do beyond this point. It's so hard to determine what the actual potential is of a human, and it's much easier to evaluate what they have done and then make a judgment about the value of their life after living, you know, 75 years.
2: I feel like that has a lot to do your response has a lot to do with your generation too to a degree because I feel like when I'm talking to young folks that are college age students, 18 to 22 or whatever, there's a lot of sort of baked in ageism and they really want to see sort of a turnover especially around politicians and society and I don't know that they necessarily value maybe our culture as, as a whole too folks that are older generation. We don't tend to revere them and think that, oh yeah, they've still got these amazing decisions to make.
1: Which obviously would change different parts of the world that do place a lot of emphasis on the experience that elderly people have. So is this all an argument for a categorical imperative? You you have a decision that is always the right decision because it's impossible to measure outcomes, and therefore that renders utilitarianism pointless, or at least too complicated for us to enact, especially like what you're talking about, Rob, if it was really a spur of the moment sort of thing, what are you going to bring up a chart of everybody's life and like a Santa Claus's list of naughty and nice, try and figure out who deserves to die and who doesn't? I need my decision matrix. Kelly, where's it at?
0: That just tells you how quickly you need to attend to a light bulb versus a clogged toilet. So I'm, I'm sorry. It's not going to
1: help you too much right now. <laughs> I think Rob and I built that up in our minds, maybe a little bit too much. <laughs> it's, it's usually more mundane than I think you think it is. <laughs> this is all assuming that we're acting rationally too, and we're making decisions rationally. But exactly. I wonder. How often do people really make these decisions weighing out moral calculus? Or is this, realistically, is it just a purely psychological thing? Are we just knee-jerk reaction, the way our biology, the way we're hardwired, that determines the choice we're going to make, regardless of all these fancy theories?
2: I feel like this is a huge area for research in VR, potentially, right? You run through a bajillion scenarios, like, all right, well, if you have to make this decision in a split second, what does humanity do overall? Because you're right, this is just this is game
1: theory. Mm-hmm. And do you think people could be trained to make let's say we agreed on what the moral decision was? Could they be trained on it, or do you think still there's too much psychology at play to change what people would do? Well,
2: I'm hoping that in, in this situation where they've got to decide between these geriatrics folks that we think that they've got still got some great influence on society and policy or whatnot versus the babies. I'm thinking they're probably going to go for the babies every time if that's baked into our millions upon millions of years of evolution.
0: The drive of humanity is to make more babies and not too much of an emphasis on making more
1: seniors. <laughs> Speaking of babies or, or family members, what if it was a relative on the track? What if the scenario here is your mom... Usually that's a punchline for a joke, but say in this don't bring my mom into
2: this, man. Come on.
1: <laughs> Kelly's mom. I'll leave your mom out of it, Rob. So Kelly, your mom is on one track, and there are how many people would it take on the other track for you to be willing to pull the lever?
0: First, I'm glad my parents don't listen to this anymore. I say, this
1: is a brutal question. Second, <laughs> it depends on
0: how much my mom's annoying me that day.
1: Uh, is there a number though? Is there
0: I mean, it would take ten
1: people for me to throw my mom under the trolley, literally. mm. Yeah, this better not get back to your folks. I'm gonna Mm -hmm. hold this as blackmail. I'm gonna keep the record of it.
0: I would not let my mother die for anything. Is that what you want me to say? Is that what Iris would want me to say?
1: (laughs) So you're gonna let 100 people's mothers die?
0: I so take this into like a real world scenario. I see cats running through my neighborhood all the time, and they should not be outside. And If I can get close enough to like take a picture and post on next door, I might, but I'm not going to actively try to like get those cats back into the rightful homes and make sure that they're microchipped or whatever. The other day, my screen door didn't shut when I was bringing in groceries and I couldn't find a cat for like two minutes. And I basically lost my mind. So I think the impulse is, yeah, I don't give a shit about all those other cats in the neighborhood, even though I'm very much a cat lover when it's my cats at stake. there's no. Possibility that I would stop trying to pursue their safety. Right. So I think that I know if I'm in an actual emergent situation and my mom's life is at risk, despite how bad the teen years were for me, I would, I would save her.
1: (laughs) Okay. I'm going to abuse my knowledge of Kelly for a second here and post one last trolley problem for you. What if on one track are your two cats and on the other track is your brother? Oh, the cats. (laughs)
0: i'm getting along better with my brother now but he's not my cats we start drilling you on these questions josh perhaps a more personal calculus here when we're talking about the trolley problem is if it's your mom on one track and then yourself on the other one rob what do you think about that self-preservation or preservation of the
2: mama Oh my gosh. My mom's definitely going to listen to this episode. Uh, I'm <laughs> How does taking, it feel? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm taking myself out because my mother is a saint and she deserves every moment on this planet because she touches it with
1: great joy and beauty. And um, I'm a bit of a devil, so I'm out. And Rob just guaranteed himself a real nice Christmas present there.
0: <laughs> Rob, you might be too pure for this podcast. <laughs>
1: <laughs> There's going to be outtakes too, right? <laughs> <laughs> there's I I guess an infinite number of scenarios we could play out here and actually there's a pretty cool website called called www.moralmachine.net that's what the website is called or that's the address for it at least and we're going to link that on our social but what you can do there is play through a variety of scenarios and at the end this website kind of tells you the sorts of things that you value or don't And so if our listeners are curious and want to put themselves through the ringer, uh, we'll, like I said, we'll put that up on our Facebook and Twitter, both at Indubitably Pod. But these are all theoretical scenarios. What about some real world implications? Because none of these philosophical conundrums matter if it's not something that we would ever actually come across or ever actually utilize. Where are some places in which the trolley problem actually plays out in real life? besides San Francisco?
2: Definitely artificial intelligence programming right now. I, I, I am in San Francisco. So I, for example, I see these Waymo cars all the time and I realize that you know there's, there's a person and some ideas, some ethical choices behind what those cars have to do in these predicaments with no drivers. So we think it's artificial intelligence, but there's definitely a person that made a decision that reverberates with the car in a situation where it's got to make a choice about what's going to cause less harm or what's the right thing to do in a situation.
0: Aside from that, even just normal policies that the government would be putting forth or funding, take into account the greatest good for the greatest number of people, which inherently means allowing harm to come to other people who are not going to be included in whatever that plan provides that means like school funding it means social programs it means which countries we give foreign aid to all of that also has a very good link to the the question that the trolley problem has raised
2: that's true i think the the extrapolations of the trolley problem go back to personal decisions we make on a daily basis right do we do we give money to the person on the street that looks like they need a meal or do we think about all right well no actually my household might suffer in the long run so
1: yeah i i, I agree so if we were to take this out of the trolley and into the real world, some of the things we're talking about, self-driving cars, say you're a programmer, or government policy, say you're a congressperson, heaven forbid, how do you think most people make their decisions? Do you think they do it deontologically? Do you think they have a set of rules in their mind that they follow? This is the right thing to do? Or do you think every time they come across a decision, there? Weighing out the pros and cons and and constantly trying to find what they think, keyword there, is the best way to maximize happiness for the people that they think, keyword there times two, uh, deserve it the most, would benefit the most from it, etc.
0: Most people make decisions based on what benefits them, whether directly or indirectly they often make decisions that could benefit other people, but rarely do it without also having some sort of self-interest involved.
2: I agree. I think we're definitely in the age of virtue signaling. So I think a lot of people do make decisions or like, what's going to be best for my ego and my, you know, my virtual representation of myself. What can I tell everybody else? What I did in that situation is that going to somehow self-aggrandize me.
0: We're going from a utilitarian perspective, me being happy with myself because I do good things means that I continue to do good things in the future so perhaps the motivation and satisfaction I get from you know donating to charity or whatever perpetuates it and I continue to do things that benefit others mm. that maybe I wouldn't if it didn't feel
1: so good to do it see i think that for me the ideal scenario would be one in which we do have a categorical imperative there's something that's i'm going to say always right even though i'm about to contradict myself but I think it's important to have that imperative established and then also sort of have that critical thinking always going on in the background because there's going to be certain scenarios where it just makes too much sense to break it in this instance to ignore. That would be my ideal world. It's it's almost always wrong to kill somebody, but in this particular case, dropping a drone strike on this one person who's about to commit a terrorist act or continue a war inside of a country that's going to result in thousands of deaths, in this instance, probably the right decision. So deontological ethics with an asterisk, or does that just make me a utilitarianist? Makes you a deep thinker.
2: (laughs) (laughs) We're, We're all trying to come up with different rationalizations all day long, right? We're trying to figure out what's going to make us feel less friction in our mind and in our soul. So I think that's why, you know, a lot of folks do feel comfort in a strict rule of ethics that are, you know, maybe given by God or their religion or whatnot, or their personal code, if you will. But I think this stuff is, for the most part, quite messy, and we have to figure out all the time. That's what makes life interesting, right? It's it's making these ethical decisions as we go.
0: Definitely makes life stressful.
1: Speaking of stressful, why don't we throw Kelly in jail? It's probably overdue. And just to make it interesting, I'll jump in there with you. No, thank you. Wow. Okay. I see how it is. this, This is perfect. This leads us into the second half of the show where trolley problem done. We're going to be moving into the prisoner's dilemma.
0: Yes. The prisoner's dilemma is a theoretical exercise about what you would do in a situation where you have limited information It's typically in game theory. It's a situation in which two players each have two options whose outcome depends crucially on the simultaneous choice made by the other, often formulated in terms of two prisoners separately deciding whether to confess to a crime.
1: So this is Kelly and I robbed a bank. Let's take it to capitalism. Good job, Kelly. Yep. And then we got (laughs) arrested, not taking it to the prison industrial complex. Less good job, Kelly. And. We're thrown in separate interrogation rooms where we are told if we throw the other person under the bus, they will go to jail for a very long time, but we will go free.
0: We're also told that if we both throw each other under the bus, we'll
1: both go to jail. Mm. But we don't know what we're doing. We don't know what the other person is saying. Mm -hmm. So do we cooperate with each other, stay silent, and maybe we both spend three months in jail for some made-up crime like trespassing? Or do we try to save ourselves, do no jail time, and throw our compatriot, sorry Kelly, under the trolley and make her go 10 years in jail and I walk free? So if we both throw each other under
0: the bus, then we both endure the maximum consequences of the criminal punishment.
1: (laughs) So in a scenario like this, what would you both do? Rob, what would you do? Would you rat the person out?
2: I feel like it has a lot to do with how well you know the person. And, you know, do you have goodwill towards them? Can you guys somehow secretly collaborate on goodwill?
1: Mm, no communication. That's one of the big caveats for the prisoner's dilemmas. You have no capacity to communicate with the other person when the decision's being made. Maybe when you're committing the crime, hey, Kelly, we're going to go rob this bank. And if we get caught, I swear I'm not going to rat you out, but once you get caught, no communication.
0: Yeah, I guess it depends on how much you trust a person prior to going into that situation. I can automatically think of at least one person in my life who I know if we were in this scenario would not sell me out a hundred percent. And I wouldn't sell them out either. Oh, thanks, Kelly. Definitely not you, Josh. Most everybody (laughs) else is a question mark. Wait, who is this person? A previous guest of ours, Jordan.
1: Okay. Okay. What's interesting here, as much as you say you're not going to sell anybody out, and what Rob points out, maybe if you know the person that's different, but all things being equal, game theory would suggest it's actually always better to betray your compatriot. It always leads to better results
2: for you or for everyone?
1: For yourself. Right. Yeah. Good. That's a good point for yourself. So if we play this out in our heads, Let's say Kelly stays quiet. If Kelly stays quiet and I stay quiet, we both do three months. But if Kelly stays quiet and I throw her under the bus, I walk free. So walking free, better than three months, means that I should betray her. If Kelly betrays me, I'm going to go to jail for 10 years either way. But at least if I betray her back, she's going to be in there with me. So <laughs> there, is, there is no situation in which betraying the person leads to a worse outcome than staying loyal to the person so game theory would suggest that you should always actually betray the person i guess again the caveat here is if you think you really know them and you're really confident that they've got your back then maybe you can stay loyal
2: well i've done some time in prison
1: and uh you know i did i have a former career as a warden so
2: I feel like I've got some expertise in this area if you guys want to, you know, game this out a little bit more and
1: maybe put some some stakes out. Oh, should we make this real? Should we, Rob, do you want to be game show host here? Absolutely. <laughs> I'm thinking so. There was a game show that where they actually did put this into play. It was called Golden Balls. If our listeners want to look that up and they did it with cash. So say there was a forty thousand dollar prize. There's this forty thousand dollars on the line to contestants. And the contestants could either split or steal, and if they both split, they'd get twenty grand each. But, like in the prisoner's dilemma, our our compatriots behind bars, if one were to steal and the other were to split, the one that steals gets all forty thousand, and the one that splits gets nothing.
0: What happens if they both select to steal?
1: Ah, then they both walk away with nothing, so they've shot each other in the foot so. Either one gets forty grand, the other gets nothing, they both get $20,000 each, or they both walk away with nothing. Kelly, are you ready to play Golden Balls?
0: I guess so.
1: <laughs> I want
2: to know what the stakes are, but I'm also a little bit concerned. This could be the last episode of Glue if this doesn't go
1: well. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully we've been through worse already. All right, Kelly, how about this? We've, we've made a bet on the show before about coffee and tea. Actually, I think we're tied on that. Why don't we finally break the tiebreaker right here? Hmm. If we both cooperate, I'll buy you a bag of coffee. You buy me a bag of tea.
0: Okay, that's a deal.
1: But I also know that you like nail polish. Really? And I've been getting into candles lately.
0: You you know, I like nail polish. What gave that
1: away? (laughs) (laughs) So how about this? If the person steals, they get their drink of choice plus... Either you get coffee and nail polish or I get tea and a candle. Okay. Those are stakes I can agree to. But if we both steal, we get nothing.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. All right. So now you guys are going to need to figure out what you want to do. And and then you're going to send me a private message whether or not you're going to, you know, align with your indubitably homie or you're going to sell them out. And then I will do a big reveal and we'll see
1: what happens with the, the nail polish and the candles. <laughs> All right, this is our chance to talk it out, Kelly. Before our secret message,
0: is this my moment to persuade you to split? Because I will never betray you. I will split as well, and I'm not going to be a turncoat and um, throw you under the bus. Th-
1: this is the moment to do that. But you're sounding real jaded as you say it. Perhaps that's a an illusion. Uh, so I think that you think that I'm going to steal no matter what. Mm-hmm. That's what I think, but. I want to take this opportunity on the show to prove to our listeners that I'm a better person than you would make them think that I am. So I'm going to tell you right now that I'm splitting because my reputation on the show is more important to me than a bag of tea and a candle. I don't think that's true.
0: (laughs) Um, I can tell you right now that the most practical thing to do would be to split. So that would be the thing that I would opt to do. And I'm a consistent person. You know that I'm a consistent person and a trustworthy one.
1: Mm-hmm. I'm,
0: I can have a little bit more honor than you,
1: perhaps, even, Josh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Here's, here's what I'm going to do. Because to me, winning is most important. I'm going to tell you that I'm going to split, prove that I'm a good person. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to message Rob Split. And when you put in steel, which I think you're going to do, you're going to win the game. But I'm going to win this moral competition. That I'm having with myself and our listeners.
2: I'm hmm. feeling more and more uncomfortable being in the middle of this.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right, Kelly, I'm gonna type split. That's it. Not for you, not to be a good person, but because I want to win my own reputation.
0: Well, I'm gonna type split too. So I don't know what else to say.
1: All right, let's let's chat this over to Rob right now. I am typing. I'm going to try and type loud so we can hear it on the recording.
2: <laughs> oh, and the results come in and we see that Josh has decided to split showing his moral. Let's go. Maybe
1: superiority. Good person. We'll see. Kelly, her response is. steal. No, I knew it. I knew it. Damn it, Kelly. <laughs> Whatever. I'm a better person. I'm a better person. You enjoy your coffee. You enjoy your nail polish and sit there and revel in the fact that you're an immoral person.
0: I'm a perfectly moral person treating myself the way that I
1: deserve to be treated. I just want our listeners to know that this played out the way that I called it. I've not been bamboozled.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I'm actually very curious. So after that nice talk you guys had and this long relationship, indubitably, why did you make the decisions that you made?
0: I knew Josh was going to have to say split because Everything he has done up to this point indicates steel and he would want to subvert expectations.
1: That's Hmm. true. And I also think Kelly's just made me look like a bad person on this show. Here's my one chance to redeem myself a bit.
0: (laughs) What did you think? You you really thought I was going to do steel no matter what?
1: I really did because I I wasn't sure if you believed that I was going to split after that whole speech that I gave. I thought that you thought that I might still consider stealing. And I think the worst scenario for you would to be beaten by me when I stole and you split.
0: So ultimately I chose steal because either way I wouldn't end up spending any money. (laughs) Either you have to buy me the coffee and the nail polish, which I am very curious about which nail polish you're going to pick. Oh, do I get to pick? Yeah, you get to pick. And I'm very much looking forward to that. Either that or neither of us would get each other anything. Either way, no cash out of my pocket.
1: <laughs> so you went with the traditional game theory. It's always better to betray.
0: In this case, yeah. If you were someone else, I don't know if I would do the same thing. If I didn't know you, if I didn't know you, I probably would have gone split.
1: Damn, Rob, didn't you say if you know the person, you're more likely to split? This this does not bode well for Kelly and my relationship.
2: I guess it depends upon the person that you know.
1: Mm. Is that how you thought it was going to go, Rob? Uh, I had no idea, to be honest with you. I, I feel like
2: uh, you know this is my big chance to, to to really look into the the hearts and souls of the Indubitably podcast hosts.
1: <laughs> you just saw darkness. Yeah, darkness with nail polish. I think that we both predicted what was going to happen in that one playing of the game, but when when the prisoner's dilemma gets really interesting is when you play it multiple times. So now I know what Kelly just did to me. Mm. Kelly knows that I'm a good person. Mm. This is what we learned from the game right now. Virtue signal. (laughs) Going back to the trolley problem. How does playing the game multiple times affect the results? There is a interesting episode. I want to give credit here because we're going to be using this heavily as source material. There is an interesting episode of Radiolab called Tit for Tat where they talk about game theory, the prisoner's dilemma being implemented into a more real-world situation, specifically a Cold War scenario where you have two nuclear powers competing against each other over do you bomb both? Does one bomb the other? Do you both hold back from bombing each other? And in this episode, they talked about a program's competition where people submitted... Prisoner dilemma executing robots and tried to figure out which one over the course of 200 games would be the most effective.
0: I think I remember this episode and that a lot of different strategies were employed in order to kind of test the constraints of the overall question. So some programs would be all of this. One direction, five times in a row, and then five times in a row that would switch to the other decision or other intermittent patterns or what have you. And some were
1: a lot more consistent. Right. There were a couple of notable strategies, at least that stood out to me. One was called tester. And the tester program would try to be mean, try to nuke their enemy in the beginning and then see what happens. And if the enemy retaliated, it would back off. For a little while. And then after a bit, it would try to be mean again, nuke them again. And that cycle sort of continued. That's kind of how my cats interact with each other. Another scenario that is how my cat interacts with me is called the massive retaliatory strike, (laughs) where it'll cooperate in the beginning. But if you do anything to make it angry, so if you send over one nuke, just one little nuke, it'll never cooperate with you again. It's just nukes every round the rest of the 200 rounds of the game whoever designed that as a scorpio so what do you guys think then was the winner of the program rob if you had to design a program to win this 200 rounds played over and over again you get to know the results of the previous round what do you think the best strategy would be
2: i feel like this is a mutually assured destruction scenario right i don't know like what is what does being a winner mean i think i'm gonna go with the massive retaliatory strike
1: So this is the one where you think if a country were to implement this strategy, they'd be most likely to survive the the 200 rounds of this game, which is supposed to simulate the actual Cold War. That's what I'm going with. Massive retaliatory strike.
0: The actual way that the Cold War worked was that everybody cooperates because they're held in tension. So nobody ever does the
1: being mean thing. So nobody gets nuked in that scenario, but also nobody, quote unquote, wins. Because Russia still has to deal with the existence of the US and the US still has to deal with the existence of Russia. So mm-hmm. in that situation, if one person were to be, and there was a program in the competition for this, if there was a program that never nuked, they called that the Jesus program, but then the other program did send over nukes, the program that sent over nukes would win. And the Jesus program would have memorial superiority, but would lose. Does that remind you of anything, Kelly? Yes, we're taking this really personally now. Okay. <laughs> and then on the flip side of that, there's the Lucifer program, which would just be mean and retaliate no matter what, and just basically send over nukes the whole game. So with all
0: those different types of models put together, what ultimately was the most successful one?
1: This is where the name of the episode comes from. Again, if you want to check it out, Radio Lab, tit for tat. And the program that they called, Tit for Tat, operated in the following way. It would be nice at first, and if the other program continued to be nice, it would continue to be nice. But after the first round, what it would do is it would do whatever the opposing program had done previously. So if it got nuked, it would nuke them back. If the other program was nice, it would be nice back. Tit for Tat. And this is the program that survived, had success most often by the end of the 200 rounds.
2: This has a lot to do with just reciprocity in relationships, right? So if you're filling people out, do they return your call? Do they ignore you? You know, you sort of work in the trust and the intimacy, if you will, over time by seeing what the other side is going to do. Maybe this is sort of like the nature of human friendships and even romances, this tit-for-tat model.
1: Right. I think these questions, like the trolley problem, permeate kind of every level of human interaction. It doesn't just have to be national war. It doesn't have to be two people locked up in a jail cell. I think you're definitely right. Every interaction we have with each other, to, to some degree, is either a competition or a transaction. Mm. And you have to decide if you're going to compete or cooperate in each of these scenarios. Friend or foe.
0: Also, so much of how we interact with other people is taking cues from how people Initiate an interaction. It's very unsure to kind of be the one who sets the tone for these interactions. But going into a scenario which somebody else has established their mode of communicating gives you the idea of how you should then continue to communicate within that situation. So that's a little more subtle. I'm thinking a bit more about like professional contexts and overall just letting others take the lead in that little intricate dance.
2: I feel like somebody should trauma dump about, about uh, work meetings right here.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, we can do that later. (laughs) And that's where the game theory, remember in the prisoner's dilemma executed once it said that you should typically not cooperate with the person, but in this competition, played out over 200 rounds, or potentially even just two rounds, the default was to be nice at first, not nuke your opponent, whatever scenario, whatever the nuke would be. But if they break that trust and they come back at you with the steal or the nuke, then do what they did. So it's interesting, the difference there. Do you think this suggests that the default mode of humans is cooperate? And so if your first round, you start with cooperate, most likely most humans will want to cooperate back. And this tit for tat is just how you deal with the few that don't.
0: I don't think we would have gotten very far as a species if cooperation wasn't our default mode.
1: Yeah, we're social creatures. I was pretty
2: cynical in the first half of the show. I'm going to throw in that. No, maybe at the end of the day we're we're pretty cooperative at our core. I feel like you've given me a new strategy for life, Josh, instead of the uh, decision matrix coming from Kelly's workplace.
0: Yeah, that's really not much of a life lesson. That's really about like when to repair air conditioners and stuff.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We promised you, Rob, you're coming into this show having made lots of unethical decisions. You're coming out of it a new moral person. I feel good. And so what are some real world? We've talked about the theory. We've talked about computer programs. But just like the trolley problem, there are some real world examples of where this would play out so the scenario that that i was thinking about is the situation in afghanistan
2: and kabul when the united states was occupying for over 20 years and there's a lot of parties that have interests in a variety of different scenarios who's going to be aggressive who's going to come to the table for peace talks we've got the taliban we've got the united states government we've got pakistan and we've also got the afghan mm-hmm. national coalition and who's going to blink in that situation in terms of who's, who's willing to negotiate and who's going to try to save face? Everybody's got something at
1: stake. Mm-hmm. And somebody has to be willing to put themselves out there first and see how everybody else responds. Right. They've, somebody's got to make a concession.
2: Or am, I, am I willing to sort of back down at some of my key goals and, and things if it somehow helps the collective? Or do I keep a hardline stance and wait for somebody else to acquiesce?
0: This reminds me of a 30 Rock episode where Liz's contract has come up and she's going to negotiate with Jack to see if she can get a better deal. And then she finds his coaching tapes from when he is leading seminars and how to be effective in negotiation. And so she starts to employ all of his tactics. And one of the tactics is don't be the person who speaks first in a negotiation. So they're sitting across from each other. And then she puts her feet up on the table and she's wearing those running shoes that separate the toes, the like vibram insoles. And and then he goes, good God, Lemon. And then he's spoken first in the negotiation. So he's
1: already at a disadvantage in it. <laughs> As a species that relies on cooperation, I don't think we'd come very far if all of us took that same approach. If nobody was willing to make the first move, then nothing would ever get done. Whether that's in a relationship, what you were saying earlier, Rob, whether it's in the workplace, like Kelly's real-world Liz Lemon example, or whether it's in a war like Afghanistan, I'm thinking too of the Iranian nuclear deal, where Iran is developing these nuclear weapons and the U.S. government is telling them, if you stop, we'll give you X, Y, Z carat. And Iran is at the same time saying, well, if you give us X, Y, Z carat first, then we'll stop. And no one trusts the other enough to make the first move. And maybe this is just the, the whole idea that we saw played out when Kelly betrayed me a couple of minutes ago that I'm super not salty about. Mm, whatever. of when you know the person already, your decision making is, is definitely skewed. Hopefully this episode has given all of our listeners a couple of interesting things to talk about at the dinner table as we move through the holidays, what would you do if you were the person with the lever in the trolley problem? What would you do if you and one of your family members were locked in jail together faced with this prisoner's dilemma? We do have one last trolley problem scenario I thought would be fun to leave you all with, and you can hash it out yourself and then let us know whether you'd pull the lever or not on either of our socials, Facebook or Twitter at IndubitablyPod, I'm definitely curious to hear the answer that everybody would come up with. In this scenario, there is a man who's drunk driving a truck. And in the back of this truck is a breeding pair of pandas. And as this man is driving along, somebody jaywalks across the street. He swerves to avoid them hits a tree, and the truck goes up in flames. You passing by have the time to either save the driver or save the pandas. Who would you save? Let us know. At Indubitably pod,
0: There is a correct answer, and you will be graded on it.
1: <laughs> Rob, who would you save? I'm going for the pandas. I'm a, I'm a softie
2: for the, the the soft fuzzies.
0: I agree. The pandas did nothing to get into that situation.
1: Mm. Well, let us know if you agree. And Rob, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. I know you're busy with your team over at the University of San Francisco. I know they've been doing some pretty good things. I heard they won a couple tournaments. Is there any particular events or results that you want to shout out here at the end of the show? Yeah, we've actually got a cool
2: event coming up on December 1st at From Hall 115. It is open to the public from 5 to 6:30 p.m. We're doing another ethical dilemma. We're we're discussing whether or not our mascot, which is the dawn, there's a little bit of an ambiguity around what this character is, whether it is socially inappropriate, culturally insensitive, a symbol of colonialization and the patriarchy, et cetera. So something we're doing on campus. And uh, thanks for having me on the show. Really enjoy these dilemmas that I'm in, and think it's going it's to make some, for some good conversation.
1: That event sounds fun, too. We'll post a link to it on our socials uh, for anybody in the Bay Area that might want to check it out. Additionally, listeners can keep an eye on our socials because I am going to post an
0: unboxing of whatever garbage nail polish I assume Josh will be picking out for me.
1: Hey, I'm a, I'm a fair loser. I'm going to send you something nice, I think, with my vast knowledge of nail polish. I cannot wait to see what
0: you pick out. I think you should have to do it without like doing any research or asking anybody. You should just go into, I'm, a, I'm not even going to tell you what kind of store, go into a store and buy a nail polish.
1: Can you imagine you're working at a Sephora and some guy walks in with a beard and very much not wearing makeup and is like, I need to buy nail polish. What should I get? I guarantee that they're going to try to sell you
2: sunblock. Well, at least you knew what store to go into. I would have been clueless in that situation,
1: Josh. Yeah, you hear that Sephora name drop? That's the only one that I know. Does Bed Bath & Beyond sell nail polish? I don't buy nail polish at Sephora. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> if they're good enough to carry Rihanna, then they're <laughs> good enough for you to get your nail polish from.
0: I will give you $5 right now if you can name Rihanna's makeup brand.
1: Benty, let's go. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> That $5 is going straight to your nail polish purchase. Okay,
0: fine. As I know